product management isn't a hard skills job. You don't need to know how to code or sell or market or any of those things. It isn't necessary for the job at all. What your job is as the product manager is to find the people around you who can fill those gaps and who can help you get the right insights so that you can prioritize and build the best product. Hey, it's the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Got a good one for you today. I'm talking to Jana Basto. She's the founder or the co-founder of prodpad.com along with mindtheproduct.com. And she is basically a product manager by trade and she has built her product and her product community for product managers. So it's really interesting to hear her story. And uh, and we covered, as always, we, you know, we covered a lot of ground in this one, talked about her story, but also talked about what it means to actually be a product manager. That's one of those one of those job titles that I think uh, is, is just very, um, it's just kind of like a gray area. Like what is it? What does a product manager actually do? What is the value that somebody focused on managing the product brings to a business and you know Jana really did a great job of of clarifying that for me and I think for for you guys as well and then of course we talked about the story of her SaaS prodpad uh, which is a, a SaaS software as a service tool for product managers to help them do their jobs make a better impact on their business that product has has had a really uh, tremendous story um, you know starting from 2012 growing into a very healthy SaaS business. And we talked all about that that growth and how she built it, how she grew it, but also some of the challenges and, and roadblocks along the way, which are really interesting. So yeah, here you go. Here's that conversation with Jana Basto. Enjoy. All right, so I'm here with Jana Basto. Jana, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Thanks. Doing good. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the show. As we were just talking about, you know, offline, you are kind of all things product manager. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. We're, so we're going to kind of do a deep dive into what it means to be a, a product manager. I mean, we all hear that that term and that job title get get thrown a lot around in in this industry. Um, I think it's one of those roles, kind of like customer success, that it's always like it's kind of like a gray area of how you define it. So I, I really want to learn more about what that role is and and of course talk about your products and your community you know why don't you tell like how do you introduce yourself these days like what you're kind of focused on and what you what you do <laughs> that's a really good question it's actually a tough one because i have sort of spread my uh my career over a few different uh, angles i still see myself very much as a product person at heart and by that i mean the person who sits in the middle to understand what is technically feasible what's valuable to uh, the customers and uh, what's going to be usable but in reality my role has actually changed over the years whereas i started off as a product manager i'm now running a product SaaS company uh, that's designed uh, building products for product managers. And I'm also one of the founders of a community and a series of events for product managers. So I surround myself by, with product managers, uh, but nowadays it's actually not my title. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, so your, uh, your SaaS product is called prodpad.com and we'll get, we'll get all into that. And the community for product managers is called mindtheproduct.com. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah, thanks. Very cool. So, um, so I'm actually just curious, like which one came first? Like, were you working on the SaaS first or the community first? <laughs> 
they actually came into being almost at the same time. Uh, where it came out of was uh, originally it was the community and the uh, the events that we we're working on. I was at an event for um, I used to go to all the different meetup events in London, whether they were for tech people or marketing people or social media or entrepreneurs. There were never any product meetups there, and so I ended up running into another product manager there, and we were talking about how rare it was to actually meet a fellow product person. And I blurted out something like, hey, we should run an event together. We should get them together. And so that was Simon Cast, my co-founder that I was talking to at that point in time. Uh, and he agreed at that point in time. And we started working towards putting together the first ever product camp in Europe, which was uh, a product camp London that was meant to happen in, uh, we, we started planning it in May, uh, sorry, of, of, of uh, March that year in hopes of holding the event in May or June that year. And as we were working on that and building our networks and starting to talk to other people in product spaces, somebody said that we should meet Martin Erickson, who at that point in time was unknown to us, but was just starting uh, the plans behind something called Product Tank, which was an event for product people. Now, his vision was a uh, once monthly curated talks in the evening with beers, you know, for people after work to come together and chat. And our vision was for a day-long conference, uh, but much less curated, much more of an unconference style thing. And so we realized that we were actually aiming for the same markets, but but weren't competing. Uh, so we ended up, long story short, working together. So out of that grew Mind the Product, which originally was just the name of a blog for, you know, what's a great name for a blog for London-based product managers like ourselves? And we took the name Mind the Gap, with that phrase, Mind the Gap, and turned it into Mind the Product, huh. without really thinking about what it might mean when we start bringing this thing internationally, because Mind the Product is now in 150 different cities around the world. But around that same time, I was hanging out with my new friend, Simon Cast, and my co-founder on the uh, Mind the Product side, or the Product Camp side at that point. And I was showing him some sketches of something that I'd been doing, uh, some wireframes I'd been working on for a tool to help me do my job. Uh, because again, at this point in time, I was a product manager, and I just needed tools to do my own job. And so he gave me some feedback on that, which was really helpful. And then he said something along the lines of, well, this would be easy to build. I mean, I could build the back end for this. And I was like, that's great, because I, I could use help. I, I could build the front end for this. And this is at the point that I'd never actually built a, a fully scalable app in any way, shape, or form. I wasn't a trained developer, but I knew just enough HTML, CSS, and willingness to learn some jQuery. Uh, this is back when you could build something off jQuery and bootstrap and call it an app, and you were good to go. So he built the back end. I built the front end. And so this was the tool that we we're building that turned into ProdPad after a couple of years. Uh, so actually, ProdPad and Mind the Product came up just around the same time as each other, but both sort of had uh, overlapping stories because we share a co-founder. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like they, they both originated in the same way of, of meeting up in person and, and this community and around you know a shared need for a tool like this. So how many years now has ProdPad been around as, as a product? So that whole story I told you, that all started in 2010. But at that point in time, we were product managers, all of us. We didn't want to quit our day jobs. We couldn't quit our day jobs. We uh, So both things were just sort of going on in parallel and growing and sort of building their own sort of audiences and uh, interests. ProdPad itself wasn't launched as a tool until 2013. 
So it was actually in 2012 that we realized that ProdPad was gaining interest within our uh, you know, circle of product managers around us. And it's also becoming more and more useful for our teams. And this is actually one of the, um, the tipping points was that when I first started with the company, I hadn't started building ProdPad, but along the way, I started putting it together. And the developers I worked with in that small team were all aware of what I was building. So they knew what they were getting into. Once our company got funded, it started hiring a whole bunch of new developers and new folks coming into the team. And everyone who joined, I'd make sure they got an invite to this tool. But at this point in time, this tool didn't have a name. It was just this app that we used. And so people were like, this app is great, but what is it? Where did you find this thing? Because I hadn't told them I'd built it. Uh, and I figured if I could trick my coworkers into not realizing that I was the one behind it, uh, that combined with the fact that I started, uh, I put out a, a landing page saying something like, you know, ProdPad, buy product management software now. And people started clicking. And that was just enough for me to have the confidence to go, you know what? ProdPad has some interest. It could turn into something quite big. Uh, at this point in time, Mind the Product was just about to start running their first ever conference. So Mind the Product conference is coming up. So let me uh, let me just like uh, cut in real quick. We're going to get through the whole story of, of how you had that early traction. Before we go backwards, can you give me like a snapshot like today of like the size of ProdPad as a product, as, as a customer base? And then maybe the same thing on Unmind the Product. Like, what does that look like today? And then we'll kind of get back into how it all came together. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So we uh, we measure them both in two different ways because ProdPad is a SaaS tool. Uh, so with ProdPad, we count the number of customers that we have. And we've got almost a thousand customers all around the world. Uh, and these are paid customers. Uh, we do have a whole bunch of people on our free or starter tiers. But these are paid customers that could range anywhere from 50 people in their team to 5,000 in their team. And they tend to be all around the world wow. using um, ProdPad, mostly in the US, uh, simply because we made a conscious effort to Americanize our blog and our, you know, price it in US dollars from the get-go. But uh, yeah, so we've got uh, quite a large user base of different companies using it there. That's really impressive. So I guess like from 2013 on to today, 2018, like you've seen that sort of growth and and the types of companies who are using it. It, it looks like a lot of like large, well-known brand names are, are using this. Yep. Like, Or are there smaller startups in the mix too? Or who, who are you kind of targeting there? <laughs> so it's actually quite funny because if you look at our site, obviously we're going to be putting on the big names who are using us. Those are the ones that people recognize. Um, that's not our typical customer because there's only so many um, big companies like that. The typical customer is often somebody who you know might have 500 people in a company, are not classified as a startup, aren't classified as some big blue chip or Fortune 500, but definitely have product management problems. And they might have a dozen product people and a few products that they're trying to build. And they've got the same struggles that product managers across the world do. And they're just looking for tools to help them do their jobs. So the bulk of our customers are actually people that you probably have never heard of. Uh, we certainly hadn't until they, they turn up and start using it. But, you know, when we first started launching ProdPad, we assumed that the typical user would look like us, as in tech startup type companies, maybe up to 50 people in their company, you know, working alongside something like a Trello board. Uh, but in reality, the needs of much larger companies are, you know, much larger and there's much more interest and uh, budget from companies like that. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, and then um, mind the product, what does that look like in terms of like, how do you measure that in members or yeah, so we have a, uh, a rough gauge of members because what we have are communities spread up among, I think it's 156 different cities around the world. So that original product tank that uh, Martin first came up with that we helped put together was a uh, 
uh, started in London with 20 people, but now we're seeing them growing from city to city to city. Uh, so we have 150 different cities around the world. Uh, it counts for about 50,000 members around the world. We have two major conferences. So we're running one uh, in a couple of weeks' time in San Francisco, where we're going to have 1,500 product managers getting together, and another one that happens in the uh, the fall in London, which is another 1,500 product managers, plus smaller conferences in between. I'm I'm like torn on on what I want to ask you in this interview because like part of me definitely wants to dive into the product management stuff and the story of Prodpad, but I'm also just fascinated with like how are you able to manage these two organizations and especially a a community that has all these like worldwide city-based because i I know people who run conferences and just running like one annual conference is a is a massive you know amount of work in itself and to have all these meetups i i guess i'm uh i we will jump back into your story into product management in, in just a minute but i'm i'm curious like where do you spend the most of your time today is it is it in the the community side or and like managing a team under you like what does what does this look like So uh, you're right, this would be absolutely impossible to do, certainly by myself. What actually happened in 2015 was that uh, myself and Simon, two of the founders of both companies, were working on both companies quite equally. And the other two founders of Mind the Product were working on other gigs that they had. They still had their day jobs, which meant that no one was working on either company full time. There were no founders involved full time with either company, which just wasn't workable. You know, at this point in time, we were launching the San Francisco conference and it was growing from strength to strength and ProdPad is growing as well. And so what we ended up doing was splitting where myself and Simon stepped back operationally from Mind the Product and James and Martin, the other two co-founders, stepped up and took full-time roles there, which allowed both companies to grow. And from there, it was just around good hiring. It was finding the right people. So my involvement in Mind the Product is much less of the operational, putting together a conference, which I will tell you is some of the hardest things that you can possibly do. I'm sure. And I'm so glad we have a, uh, a chief operating officer and a team there who now runs those and you know makes that magic happen. Uh, it's almost like you, you can just go kind of like attend and participate in the community, but you don't have to like run it. Yes, I fly the flag. I'll help, you know, find speakers and uh, organize attendee stuff and that sort of stuff, but never anything critical. You know, when it comes down to the registration and the food and the the speaker flights, we'll leave that to the the professionals on our team. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And same thing goes with Broadpad. At one point in time, I was doing everything from coding through to marketing through to you know, writing blogs and doing every little piece of it. But nowadays on the ProdPad side, I've surrounded myself with an amazing team who takes the bulk of that. Fantastic. Okay, so let's go back. You talked about how this all really started when you started attending these local meetups and you were excited to find other people in the product manager role and you were interested in meeting people who do what you do. I'm curious, like, what were you doing? What was that job? <laughs> like, how, how did you get into product management? And what was your job, that job description at the time? So I got into product management, like pretty much every product manager that I know, which is completely by accident, uh, especially back then 10 years ago, uh, there was no university course or known career path into product management. Most people I know who fell into it were doing something like sales or support or development or marketing. And they're always the person who didn't quite fit with the rest of their team. They're always the one who asked so many questions and were curious about the bigger picture, figuring out bigger problems or communicating across the company. 
So my own personal route was as a customer support rep for a tech company based in Montreal. My boss pulled me aside and he said that uh, he liked the way that I communicated with the development team as well as with the customers. I was doing a good job at both fronts. And so that was your entry point like into the whole industry was as a customer support rep? Yep. He pulled me aside and told me that he'd like to make me a junior product manager. And I was like, that's great. What is it? <laughs> and I had to go back to my desk and actually Google what is product management. And at that point in time, there was just so little information that wasn't very much there. Um, the only uh, series that I can actually recall seeing was uh, Jeff Lash's um, Good Product Manager, Bad Product Manager series. And that gave me some guidance early on, but there just wasn't enough information about what tools to use and what processes to follow and how to actually deal. What kind of uh, company were you working for? It was a tech company based out of Montreal. Uh, it was, think about, it was like a trading platform. So think about like an eBay, but for a very, very niche market. And our particular niche market was um, electronic components. Okay. So it wasn't anything I had any expertise in at all, but it just so happened that I was good at troubleshooting and helping people figure out their way through a marketplace app and figure out my way through the systems. And it, at the end of the day, was a communication role more than anything, which I think sheds some light on what product management itself is. Yeah, kind of like communicating between the different teams, the different stakeholders, communicating with customers. Yeah. At the end of the day, product management isn't a hard skills job. You don't need to know how to code. You don't need to know how to write good copy. You don't need to know how to design or sell or market or any of those things. It helps if you have a baseline understanding of those things, but it isn't necessary for the job at all. What your job is as the product manager is to find the people around you who can fill those gaps and who can help you make decisions or help you get the right insights so that you can prioritize and build the best product. So how much of it is about this term that we hear all the time, customer development or customer research? Does that, I mean, I assume that that really plays pretty heavily into what you do as a product manager? Yeah, that plays in quite heavily. Um, now, of course, the amount that you actually do in terms of customer development or customer research depends on what strengths your company has already. So if you are in a company that has historically never really spent much time doing customer research and possibly is building the wrong thing, then that's where you should be focusing your time and that sort of thing. If your team has a developed UX team who already does all this customer research and development, uh, who already has a customer success team and knows where it is they're going, but maybe struggles on the development side, then maybe you want to be focusing your time, making sure that you're prioritizing and writing the right level of specs and you know, allowing the team to build autonomously, but trusting the UX team to do their piece. Uh, so a lot of the times when you start a new product management job, you shouldn't be going in there guns blazing, saying what, what's going to happen next. You should be spending the first few months just listening and really getting a feel for how the company works and figuring out where it is that you can help tie those ends together. Because that product manager is often that really nebulous role that sits in between. That is the communicator. That is the the orchestrator. But the actual role differs massively from company to company and from team to team. Where does it typically come down in terms of like who's making decisions? Like, so I'm, I guess I'm a little bit unclear. Like when, when I think of a product manager, am I thinking about a project manager? Like someone who's communicating between different teams, keeping everyone on task, organized, delivering on time, stuff like that. Or is it about, okay, there are these 10 features we want to build we should just build these two or three as our top priority features. And as the product manager, I'll basically decide on that. Like, is it a mix of those things? Like, 
Well, you've actually touched on a really interesting point there, which is the difference between a product manager and a project manager. And you'll actually find that um, a lot of product managers hate when they get classified as a project manager okay. because the project manager's job basically is to take a known project scope set of things to be done and organize with the team so that it gets done on time within the scope and meets the level of quality that is expected. Whereas building a product is actually a series of ongoing overlapping projects. So it's actually much more like a program management type job where if done right, the product manager is helping to identify what the product vision is and making sure everyone understands that and then giving people the guardrails so that they can make decisions on what kind of things are going to be done to solve certain problems for the company. So a lot of that is around that prioritization and saying no to nine of the features that have been requested because this is the one that solves the problem the best way and has been tested well and you know whatever else has, has floated up to the top for whatever reason. And then it often switches at that point in time. Either that can be handed to a, you know, you've got that ideal team of developers, including a product owner who can take that and turn that into finished specs. But most teams aren't these perfect cookie cutter teams that you'll read about. You've got your own idiosyncrasies within your team. And so the product manager often does end up for better or worse, being stuck doing the project management, which is often where the confusion comes in, where they are the one saying, okay, so who's working on this and when's that coming out? Yeah, like a lot of people wearing a lot of hats, especially the product yeah. manager. And that's usually how I recommend people split it out is that think of yourself as the product manager. That is your title. That is your reason for being in the company. That's what they're paying you the big bucks for or not. That's what you're being uh, tasked to do. The project management is just a hat that you put on and then can take back off. It's a role that you play every once in a while in order to make sure things get out the door. And at the end of the day, everyone wears that hat. Project management is nothing more than fancy doing tasks. Right. Uh, <laughs> everyone should have some level of task management and ability to take a piece of work and move it from uncomplete to being finished. But the product manager has a much wider piece, which is making sure that the series of projects that are being done actually add up to solving the major problems that the product needs to, uh, remaining competitive, solving customer problems, hitting that product vision. Yeah, those, those are actually questions I wanted to ask you about competition. But even before I get to that, but how about interfacing with the marketing team or really being involved in, in marketing? I mean, that goes hand in hand with customer research, right? So like understanding these features are important to build because as a company, we've decided to go after this segment of the market and we see more of an opportunity there. Like how much, how does that work kind of play into talking with the development team and the support team and all that? Yeah. I mean, I like to think about marketing as being a vector for getting some really good insights because the marketing team is probably going to understand most about what kind of terminology works or what kind of market responds the best. Uh, and you can't just go with exactly what the marketing team says. You need to combine that with what the success team says. Well, this is what you know gets us the uh, the customers who stick around the longest. Yeah. So it's like one thing to drive a lot of traffic and free trials. It's another thing to yeah. those customers to stick around. Yeah. But that entire market-facing side represents a huge chunk of where the product manager needs to be interfacing. So whether that's sales or success or marketing, or in reality, so many companies have like these blended roles or blended spaces. 
so it's definitely a vector for understanding what's going on in your market and what kind of things you could build towards and that should be shaping what your vision is uh, but likewise it's also uh, something that should be shaped by your vision just because a market might be easier to attract right now doesn't necessarily mean that it is the most compelling or interesting or valuable thing for the company to be going after yeah so okay the next question which we just touched on briefly is competition but also your vision like whether it's your vision as the product manager or the founder's vision or however the the product originated um i kind of struggle with this too with my products i've always leaned much more heavily on the vision and what i what i get from my own customers and audience versus caring about what the competition is doing like i'll i'll tend to look at what the competition is doing but then not focus on it too much. But I wonder if that has changed more in recent years. I feel like especially SaaS products, software products have become so competitive that customers are really looking at the competitive landscape more than they have in previous years. So like, how do you think about looking at the competition, factoring in what they're doing versus what you're doing? How do you think about all that? And also balancing that with your own vision and what you're learning? Uh, I think you actually touched on something, which is the right approach. And I, I think it's always been the right approach, which is to pay attention to what the competitors are doing, but don't let it spook you. Don't let it, you know, force you to change your vision or change your plans right on the spot. Because remember that the competition knows just about as much about the market as you do and are likely to be making the same mistakes that you might be doing. So they don't know everything. Just because they built a feature doesn't mean that it was the magic one. And I think companies who spend too much time looking at other companies end up building, getting themselves into these feature wars, right? They're trying to get these check marks down the side of the page saying, well, we've got more features and we're cheaper, so you should buy us. But that actually doesn't lead to a better, more compelling product. Some of the most compelling products out there are not more feature rich, but are more accessible. They're better branded. They are more user-friendly. Like take uh, Slack versus previous chat tools. There's been thousands of chat tools over the years, and Slack is basically a ripoff of all of those things, feature by feature, but yet it has a level of delight to it. It has a level of usability to it that just outstrips everything else. And they haven't built more functionality, yeah. but they certainly are making considerably more money out of it than anything else. And likewise, you know, if, if your competitor builds a particular feature, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right thing for you to build. The number of times that I've seen a competitor build a feature and then get stuck having to support that feature and add more to it and all this other stuff, which actually turns out like it wasn't the most important thing and it's not solving big problems for users. Now it's just something else that they have to maintain, whereas you can sit back and find out, like, is it actually something people want? Yeah. And also, don't mistake your competitors. A lot of people get into this whole thing of assuming that somebody's a competitor is much bigger than them or, you know, has more uh, right to be in that market. I like to think about competitors as what your customers would be using if you didn't exist. And more often than not, your biggest competitor is still a whiteboard, a spreadsheet, a piece of paper, that sort of thing. You know, there's certain spaces where you're going to be going in against something that already has huge feature richness, which is a very difficult space to be in. But there's still so many spaces out there that could be made 
uh, can solve problems for customers because they are just still using a spreadsheet or a whiteboard or something like that. And there's still opportunity there. So don't worry so much about your competitors until you actually see people saying, no, I'm actively choosing to go with your competitor because of X, because they have feature X, or because their price is lower, this that, and the other. That's when you need to start paying attention when it's actually affecting your ability to close sales or keep customers. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so what does a uh, like a healthy product management process look like? Like what what are the routines that you're working on in terms of like how you're spending your hours as a product manager? Um, maybe another way of asking this is, you know, when you if you look at a company or, or some common pitfalls that happen to companies when they don't have a solid product management process in place. Um, yeah, what does that look like? That's actually a good way to put it is, you know, what would it look like if you didn't have a product manager? Because oftentimes product managers are considered um, something that you don't need. I mean, in some cases, that's that's true for a short amount of time. If you were to take a typical company and take away all the developers, you would know, like work would stop, nothing would be built. If you were to uh, take a company and take away all the salespeople, well, you would know your, your numbers would stop, right? Like you'd be immediate. If you took that same company and took away the product person, things would still go just fine for a little while until you start realizing that you've now got Salespeople who don't trust what's been uh, what they've asked for has actually been listened to. You've got developers not sure as to whether they're actually building the right thing or if they're just building on the whims of whichever customer paid the most. Uh, you've got people who are stressed out because they're not communicating in the most effective way. And then long term, you start seeing the knock-on effects of building the wrong thing, building in tech debt, building in things that were built because the competitor did it or because the boss said so or whatever else. Now, some companies get away with not having product managers, uh, particularly in the early stages, because the reality is, is that usually for a company that's been started by somebody, the best person on the team and the person who naturally gravitates to that is the founder. They become the product person, but there becomes a point, maybe after they've got 10, 20, 50 people or so, that they can't manage the company as well as manage the product. And that sort of comes down to how product-minded that company, that that CEO is or that founder is. But oftentimes you'll find that their product person isn't the first hire and therefore companies think they don't need one. Right. Hmm. So so let's let's jump back to Prodpad. You were working in this product manager role. You were doing that that sort of work every day. What led you to I mean what led you to just to the idea of like, hey, why don't I start my own product like why why not just kind of continue on in in that role well it started out as a uh, a glorified spreadsheet I, you know when i first started this gig i looked up what i needed and i, I could see right away that i needed roadmaps to make it look like I've, i'm doing stuff and prds requirement documents to help me figure out what to send to my developers and i remember my first ever prd was something like 80 pages long and it included UML and all this other stuff, um, really technical, because that's what I thought was needed based on my initial conversations. And then I found out later that no one had actually read that document. So that was the last time I ever wrote a PRD that was 80 pages long. So I started creating my own templates that were more efficient, more effective, that tied the big picture road mapping together with that smaller picture, like what are we going to do next? What is this next experiment or feature that we're going to build? And this was just a series of, you know, Word documents and Excel spreadsheets that I used to mock up and change every month or so. But then over time, I started sketching this out in terms of, you know, what this would look like if it were available as a SaaS tool. Because at this point in time, this was 2000. 
2008, 2009, 2010, when I started realizing how many other tools are going into the cloud. And so I started designing something. And at this point in time, it was just on paper. Uh, it wasn't until I actually showed it to my co-founder and said, I'm thinking of building something like this. What do you think? That I realized that actually it wouldn't be that difficult to turn into an actual live product. Yeah, like it's not it's not technically that challenging to build something like that. No, exactly. I mean, as you know, as he pointed out, he's like, well, this is just a simple database system, simple CRUD system. That'd be easy enough to build. Now, nowadays, it's much more advanced than that. Nowadays, the baseline expectation for a, a business level quality app is supporting things like offline mode and real-time collaboration, supporting responsive web. And you know, they want it to work on their iPads just as much as it works on their full screens and everything else. So the bar has gone up. So if we, uh, like, once again, like, jump to present day, right? Like, how do you actually describe ProdPad in terms of, like, what what are the key features if you had to kind of boil it down to, like, what is ProdPad? What am I looking at? What What is it? So it's a tool that actually helps you and your team build better products. And it's an entire system, if you think about it, because what it does, it allows you to gather ideas from your team, insights and feedback and suggestions from your customers, and make sure that those go into a place that they'll actually get worked on. One of the biggest complaints about product people is that they tend to lose ideas. They, it becomes this black hole. So ProdPad helps you make sure that nothing gets lost. But it also helps you ask the right questions so you can figure out which of these go to the top of the pile. So you can query it and say, like find all the things that are revenue generating and useful for Barry the buyer or Eddie the enterprise and that aren't yet on the roadmap but are quick wins. And you could find that list of ideas and then say, okay, so this one needs a business case or this one needs some designs. And ProdPad helps identify those spots. I see what you're saying. I, I have, actually hadn't thought of it that way. So if you have like a list of 50 different features, whether they're feature requests from customers or just ideas that you and your team have, they're all cool features. They, they all have some some value in some way, but some are, like you said, like revenue generating features, like this could actually add MRR or some are just kind of like nice to have. Maybe they're operational features. Like, And, and I guess you need a way to kind of classify and, and figure out, all right, well, what is the priority right now? Yes. And it actually, it actually helps tie it back to your original vision. So you can capture your vision in ProdPad as well as your objectives to say, hey, right now it's really important for us to focus on user growth. Maybe that's what's important now. And then down the line, we're going to switch to revenue. So as you build out your roadmap saying, this is what we're going to do now. These are the things that are coming up next. And here's what's coming up later. You can then take that list of ideas and insights from your backlog and say, of all those things that are in our backlog, which are going to support this big vision and this strategy that we've outlined on our roadmap itself. So it actually helps the product manager and their teams tie together that big picture vision with the, what are we doing next? Which at the end of the day is essentially the role of the product manager. They're supposed to work with all these different teams to find out that answer. Yeah. And really, I guess the thing that you're getting at is uh, you're moving your customers, these teams away from, hey, let's just throw these darts at the wall and see what sticks and hope things work. And we don't really know for sure moving toward a system where it's like, okay, we're doing these things for a reason, a well-documented reason with with a strong business case behind these priorities. And like, even if things don't necessarily work out the way that you want them to, you can at least look back and say like, this is why we took that path because we had it all like documented. Yeah. And that's a few of the other things that ProdPad actually does is that it brings your entire team in so that it's not just the product manager and their insight going at it. It's everybody's insight. And so it makes it very obvious as to, you know, why one thing is being prioritized over the other. And that way, nobody feels like 
you know, their ideas aren't being listened to, they can just see that, well, this idea is useful here, but, you know, so-and-so's idea has much more impact to the bottom line, so let's do his first. But likewise, it also takes things that you've worked on in the past and allows you to track that and say, hey, here's all the things we did launch over the last couple of years. Which of them worked? Which of them kind of worked? Which ones definitely didn't work? And what did we learn along the way? And it actually creates this uh, almost backwards looking validation roadmap so that it saves those those learnings so that you can put those into the roadmap uh, for today and make sure that you are building the right stuff going forwards. Very cool. All right. So let's get into that the actual story of, of launching it and how you've grown it. I mean, in the last few years, but really impressive growth, but early on. Okay. So you're, you're like, you're sketching out these ideas. You're using like, you're the, basically the first user, the first person who needs this. What were your very first steps? Uh, so the first things we did were we absolutely screwed up because we built it for myself and my co-founder. And we made this mistake that because we were both product managers for mid-sized tech startups, we would be able to build something. And if it was useful for us, it'd be useful for them. And we got it out there. We started sharing it just as like a beta product just to see what would stick. And it fell flat on its face. And we realized that we fundamentally got one module, a key module, the roadmaps module, completely wrong. And it needed to be thrown out and rewritten. And that was months and months and months of work that I had to throw out. How did you know that? Like, it, so you, you put it out there. Were you talking to early customers and they're just saying, like, I don't get it or you just couldn't get traffic to it? Or what did that look like? We were able to get traffic to it and we were able to get interest to it. But what we found was that as people were using this, uh, the roadmap itself, it was usually after a couple of months that we realized it was this issue because the original version of the roadmap was basically just like a, a big colorful Gantt chart, a big stack of your features saying we're going to work on this first, then this, then this. And that's actually how a lot of product managers used to roadmap and it's changing now. But the problem with that format is that you're making a whole bunch of assumptions of how long something's going to take, who's going to work on it, when it's going to come out, which is all well and good for something happening, you know, in in this sprint. But it becomes more nebulous when you're talking about next sprint or five sprints from now, or God forbid, if your bosses are asking for a year long roadmap, if you say something's going to be done by December 2014 or December 2018, you're making it up. You don't even know how big your team's going to be by then, let alone how fast you're able to deliver. And so what would happen is that people would put all the stuff on their roadmap and they'd be happy with it. And then a month would pass, right? They'd go and try to work on stuff. And they realized that actually they were only able to do maybe 60% of what they're expected to because something else came in or... Yeah, things changed. Things changed, exactly. Uh, And so what they would do is they would have to take their entire roadmap, pick it up and like move it forward by a month. And so we realized that was like a request people had. We're like, that's bad. We could either build something that allowed you to move and you know stretch out your roadmap to infinitum. But then we realized like this roadmap is lying, right? It doesn't actually solve the problem. What people really need is something to look at what's happening in the very short term, right? So like this immediate almost release process look. Uh, what's coming up next so they can make sure they've got the specs and everything lined up and ready to go. And then what's happening in the future, And at that point in time, it doesn't matter what day you're expecting something to come in, out in, or even what quarter. It's just about what order are they going to be done in. Put the most important things on the top and the least important things at the bottom. And so we actually busted apart our Gantt chart timeline style roadmap and just deleted that section of code and restarted again with a time horizon version of a roadmap. So then now next later format. So what did that actually look like in terms of time for you to build the first version, tear it all down, build the next version. And were you charging customers at this time? Or were they just like kind of free beta users 
give us feedback and this isn't a real product yet? We had a combination of the two. So we had a few of our product friends giving it a go and we're trying within our own companies. We had a few people trying the early trial of it before we'd even officially launched it or put it on prodpad.com. But we just had a few people who'd found it through our blog and were trying it out. And these are people who were really good at giving us early feedback. Product managers are amazing customers to have because they are great at giving feedback, but we could see what was falling down. And so none of these were actually paying customers at this point in time. We had a few maybes, but it wasn't really convincing enough. And especially as you know, you reach these problems and realize that it wasn't able to do what they needed to. So that was actually... I think it probably took me about six months of work just to get that version of the roadmap out. And it's quite complicated because you could drag and drop and stretch and skew and do all this stuff to the things on the roadmap. And it was also technically, I mean, it kind of worked, but it was slow. It wasn't mobile responsive. There were just a million problems with it, probably because I'm not actually a developer. <laughs> it was a relatively complex piece of front-end work. So when we threw that out, we... It took us a day in a coffee shop to realize what was going on and to sketch a first version of that new version. And then it probably took us less than a week to put together the simple three-column version and get that tested with a few customers. Because the three-column version was much, much simpler. We didn't have uh, nearly as much functionality on it. We'd ripped all that out. And we just started with the very, very core platforms. We went back to an MVP of that section. And right away, as soon as we showed that to people, we realized that actually this is going to be interesting for them. We are getting good feedback. They they can see themselves using this. So now let's launch that and start adding to that. And so the roadmap today has the same richness, if not more richness of functionality than that first version that I built. But the first version of that simple three column time horizon one was, I mean, as simple as you could make it. It was uh, like a simple tabular list, basically. Yeah, that's still really impressive. E- even as a simple thing i mean to hack away at it and basically launch go from idea sketch to launch in a week even for an mvp is is pretty impressive where did you go from there and and like and i'm kind of curious about like how did you logistically get feedback like did you have was this over email were you doing like daily calls with first users or what did that look like this is almost entirely over email. We just set up a feedback at broadpad.com, have it direct to me. And uh, if anybody asked questions, then I was there. Uh, and we also had, um, I can't even remember what it was. It was some sort of WooFoo or Google form or something like that, asking for feedback on the site. We welcomed people's feedback and we made sure that they knew where to find us. And fortunately, because our users were product managers, they're pretty good at giving feedback. They're good at warning bugs. They like that kind of thing. And so, you know, we were really lucky to get lots and lots of early feedback feedback. I still know that some of those early, early customers are still with us and very much Prodpad fans today, which is amazing. But, you know, those first early days were about just making sure that what we were building is the right thing, seeing as we've been burned by that, and turning it into a tool that can be sold as a SaaS product. Because at this point in time, you know, while we're building this thing, we were focused on the functionality that would help us do our jobs. So it didn't have a payment system. It didn't have an invite system. It didn't have onboarding. It didn't have any help guides. It didn't have anything that would actually support it as a tool. So we had to spend, uh, we spent about six months building that towards the end of 2013. And then rebuilding that roadmap at around the same time. And we launched all that. So I said at the end of 2013, that was the end of 2012. And then at the beginning of 2013, that's when we launched the new product, got it on prodpad.com with the help guides and the SaaS payment system and everything else. And that's when we started getting our first payments in. Very nice. And so, I mean, I'm looking at your pricing today in 2018, ranging from 100 bucks a month up to like a thousand bucks a month. What was your pricing back then? Like, did 
Did that change over time? Uh, very first early version was $25 a month. That was the only package you could buy, uh, but it was a much simpler product. And it was originally aimed at our much smaller group of peers that we knew around us. Nowadays, we realize that there's much more value if you're able to crack the product management uh, space. So our average customers are now closer to a couple hundred dollars a month. Wow. Yeah. And so I don't want to fast forward too far ahead, but okay, like you launched you launch it more publicly in 2013. How did you really start to get it out there and start to grow like the early part of your customer base? So uh, right out of the gate, we actually did really well. We were talking about it. We were blogging about it. We were mostly just writing how-to articles like how to do a roadmap or how to write specs. And that was actually attracting a good number of people who otherwise might have been looking for some Excel template or something like that. Uh, there weren't any other players on the market. Uh, it was, you know, if you needed product management software, there's only really prodpad out there and so we saw our growth just take off uh and it was at a really nice pitch considering that was just two of us how much did your community of, of product managers play into the marketing especially the early marketing of prodpad remarkably very little actually huh. um the communities so the mind the product community and the prodpad market are actually quite separate groups so mind the product attracts people who already know their product managers and already sort of know what they're up to and so that was kind of the core thing was people who were already doing it and had their own systems and this that, and the other whereas prodpad was attracting people who were finding us from google searches like roadmap excel template free like okay so i know you came here for a free templates in excel for a roadmap that's great that's not a good way of doing it here's why prodpad's better interesting or people looking up how to do user stories or whatever else so you're publishing these things on your blog on prodpad.com and that yeah. and that stuff is ranking in google and i can see how that i mean back then in 2013 probably still today but in 2013 with like the lean startup coming out around then and and yep. user stories and customer research and road mapping i mean that was a very hot topic then and to this day that's still our uh, biggest angle it's still our biggest winning point uh how to articles um, help stuff we now have more bandwidth so we do webinars and we do talks and we do other stuff to help educate we have an extensive help guide that goes from everything from what is product management and why do you need software for it through to detailed step-by-step -step how to set up your jira integration or how to work with our api or whatever else but that's taken years of work in itself. But the the help guide itself and the blog articles and all the help that we provide are all part of the system that helps our Prodpad users become better product managers themselves. Interesting. So, what were some of the um, what were some of the, like the biggest challenges that you had as you started to, you know, you have a, an established product now? What were some of, like the big hurdles and challenges that you faced? <laughs> Can I tell you about what went wrong in 2015? Please do. <laughs> so here we were, uh, 2013, 2014, growing at a nice pitch, right? And we started off with $0 monthly recurring revenue. And we managed to get it to the point where we had about ten dollars or $15,000 monthly recurring. And we had no salary costs. We weren't paying ourselves at this point in time. We had no development costs. We were doing it all ourselves. No sales or anything like that. This is just organic, us coding away at home and supporting customers as we could. But around that point of hitting that 10K MRR, we realized that we could actually now afford to hire people in. We could uh, hire professional developers to rebuild the junk that we'd built. SARS was actually a prototype that just continued to be used. And so we were like, well, it's not going to be scalable. It's not going to grow with us. We need to rebuild this thing. And while we're at it, we should try doing some event marketing and maybe some AdWords. Maybe we should try you know, getting out there and doing more stuff here and there and everywhere. 
And so we actually spent the entire year, it's a very British term, but we were faffing about. We were trying different things, but not really with the focus or with the... Uh, with the. There wasn't like an overarching strategy to it. There's no strategy. It was just us throwing stuff at things and seeing what stuck. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't effective. By the end of the year, we realized that we'd started a redesign of the app that was going faithfully bad. It was just terribly done. Well, so you weren't focused, but was that mostly marketing experiments or, or was the product itself starting to be, go in different directions too? The product itself started going in, in its own direction. So we started doing a rebuild of the app, thinking that we were gonna, we were going to need something that was going to be you know mobile responsive and faster and all this stuff. This version that we built on jQuery was not going <laughs> to hold up. And so we decided to rebuild it. And at that point in time, uh, this is more for the, uh, the techie audience, but we had the choice between Angular or React two new JavaScript frameworks. They seem to be cool. A uh, bit of a risk, but we weren't sure which one to go with. And we went with Angular. Now, remember, this is 2014. No one knew which one was going to take off. The problem with Angular is that they never built a proper upgrade path to the next version, and it wasn't actually all that good in the end anyways. So Angular is now dying a death, whereas React took off hugely. So we chose the wrong technology and ended up building a version of ProdPad that never actually left beta. We never actually replaced our existing app with it because it never worked in the same way. It never went as fast. It never was as reliable. Uh, and so if you don't have a reliable, fast app, there's no point in building new features. And if you're not building new features, you've got nothing to talk about. And if you've nothing to talk about, no one's going to come check you out. That that whole thing just really resonates with me a lot like this year because, I mean, I, I had been outsourcing development and now I'm in this place where I, I'm learning to code. I mean, I've been a front-end designer developer, but now I'm learning learning Rails basically. But that that fear of like committing to a tech stack that is not mature enough yet. You know, like, like I ran into all sorts of issues with my SaaS where we tried to upgrade, you know, Vue.js and it broke everything. And, and so now I'm very wary of like, I only want to actually spend time learning something if it's been around and proven and it's, it's up to version four or five already, you know? Yeah. Because there is always that risk, but at the same time, you don't want to be stuck on an old tech stack and not be able to create uh, something as fast and responsive as another tool. Yeah. It's very difficult to get real-time collaboration, for example, without having basically the newest in tech and, you know, some really interesting techniques that you wouldn't find in your standard libraries. You know, this isn't stuff you can plug and play. You have to build yourself. Right, right. So how did that how did that year have an impact on the business? Like, did you literally see like MRR flatline? Like, what did that look like? That was exactly what we saw. Our MRR flatlined at um, basically from the beginning of 2015 to the end of 2015, an entire year of no growth, seeing as we'd just grown massively in 2014, uh, it was ridiculous to see this. And at this point in time, we'd actually started escalating our costs and hiring people, like, thinking that our numbers were gonna be going up and to the right. And so when they stopped doing this, realized that it costs more and more, takes more and more in effort, and yet we weren't getting more money in the bank. And this is all self-funded, bootstrapped? This is all entirely bootstrapped. Yep. Uh, it was also around this point that we started looking at taking on funding because I didn't want to get this funded when it had zero dollars in the bank and no traction at all because, you know, you end up giving away huge swathes of your company for nothing. 2015 was actually a really good year for raising in some respects because people were giving high valuations. It's easy to get seed money. It's easy to get uh, Series A, relatively speaking. And so we started talking to companies and we got to the point of having term papers on our desks, like people offering to give us money. And it was a, it was a good valuation. It was all sorts of reasons why we could take it and it would have unlocked a lot of things. But in doing so, what it actually forced me to really think was, 
Um, these are VCs and investors who are looking to get huge returns on their money. They're not looking for me to double their money. They're looking for me to 10x that money. So how do I get from where I am to where we are, especially knowing that we flatlined here? I've got to dig myself out of a big hole. And I started looking at things going, well, I could throw more salespeople at it. Let's see what happens there. And I knew that throwing salespeople at it wasn't going to solve it because we didn't have the right tech for it and we didn't have the right conversion rates. and It wasn't working for us. I could throw marketing at it. But again, it's a leaky bucket. I could throw more developers at it, but again, throwing more developers at it wouldn't necessarily make us successful or make us get anything out the door faster. I realized that there's one number I could play with in our, my spreadsheet that actually did make a difference, which was the conversion rate from free trial to paid customer. We had a bunch of people trying free, starting free trials at ProdPad, but not all of them actually paying to upgrade. And so we looked at that and figured out if we were to actually get more of those people upgrading, we win. And so we realized we didn't need developers for that. We didn't need salespeople. We just needed product-minded people, which fortunately the company already had. <laughs> like the, ir the irony of it, right? Like the, the thing that, that yeah. ProdPad needed was like <laughs> product management, basically. <laughs> and focus, because here yeah. we were, we'd been trying all this stuff, all these different things. And so I just cut everything. I just cut all the programs, all the stuff we were doing. We're not going to raise. We're not going to go to events. We're going to stop doing webinars. We're going to stop everything. And we're just going to focus on getting this one number up. And it was a series of experiences experiments that we ran and we played with everything from pricing through to packaging through to you know what actually happened in the app with emails outside of the app everything to find out what would have the biggest impact and we meant to do that for three months we ended up doing it for four months but in that time it was absolutely pivotal and those series of experiments changed our numbers so the key ones that made a difference were um we played with the trial time when we first launched prodpad we had a 30-day free trial but we realized like, we, we chose 30 days is because everyone else chose 30 days as like a typical SaaS free trial period. Right. But we realized by looking at the data, we could tell that uh, with 85% certainty by day nine, who is going to buy or not? And so we looked at that going, well, why do they have another 21 days to make up their mind? So we shortened the trial time to 14 days. And right out of the gate, that actually doubled our conversion rate. Hmm. Because it wasn't that having a short trial time was more attractive. It was that having a short trial time meant that people put more pressure on themselves to do things in the app. And the more they did things in the app, the more likely they were to find it useful. And therefore, they were more likely to buy. But our number one support request became, could we have more trial time? And so we did the only thing that made sense at that point in time, which was to shorten the trial again. So today, when you join ProdPad, you get seven days free trial. But as you use the app, we give you trial time back. Yeah. So tell us the name of your product and earn a free day. Add your first idea, get a free day. Connect it to Slack or to Jira, get five days. Add your credit card before the trial runs out, get another five days. Uh, so you actually earn this time back. Oh, that's cool. But what's actually happening is that people are saying, oh, I've now got enough trial time, but they're also forcing themselves to use the functionality. And so by getting people to actually use it made a big difference. Yeah, and, and like even if they're... Like to me, like when I get free trials on on my little SaaS that hasn't really gone <laughs> anywhere yet, but um, when a customer asks for another an extra two weeks of a free trial, I'm excited to give them an extra two weeks because it means that they're actually they're actually using it. They want to you know take a, a bit more time. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I'm not going to give them a free year, but you know it's like yeah, I love that idea of like shortening the trial period, making them kind of think about the buying decision sooner, and if it means adding uh, uh, extra trial time by request or by, you know, unlocking it in some way that that's really cool. Um, yeah. So, so, okay. So you did that like four month kind of phase of experiments working on that trial to paid conversion. 
yeah. what what happened next? One of the other key things we did at that point was uh, we played with the pricing. We changed the pricing a little bit, but we also introduced an annual price, which I didn't think was going to be important because I figured that anybody who's going to buy annual would be a small percentage of people who had already been using it for a year and then recognize that, hey, they could save money on it, uh, which there weren't tons of those customers. And we were more focused on getting people in the door and signing up. But actually, we realized uh, after we launched the annual plan, that it was one of those things I wish I'd done two years prior, right out of the gate, because um, to this day, about 10% of people have always been buying the annual package, which is huge. Even though you're giving them a discount, we give a two-month discount uh, for, for buying ProdPad for one year in advance. It unlocks massive amounts of cash for your business, and that enabled us to hire our UX team and another developer, which was then the catalyst for rebuilding the app. Um, so getting rid of that bad version that we had. The back end was fine, yeah. but the front end had to be thrown out. Uh, so we rebuilt that and it took a fraction of the time because we now had in-house developers and we really knew what we're trying to do. And when you're when you're selling to larger companies, large organizations, for them paying for an annual plan not only makes sense, it actually makes their job easier because they have a budget that they have to spend. Somehow, yeah, you know, and that was something that I discounted. I didn't expect to happen, uh, but now it's been absolutely huge. And when I talk to founders now, they say, "Oh, yeah, of course, we all knew that." Oh, okay, well, I didn't know that. Uh, so I hope that somebody listening picks up on this and actually introduces an annual plan. Uh, at the very least, at the very worst, no one picks up on it. No one buys it. You don't have to worry about it. Um, but at the best, you end up with a few grand in your pocket right out of the gate, and that allows you to hire someone on the back of that. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So, you know, as we kind of get closer to, to present day again, um, what is what's kind of like exciting and, and happening with with ProdPad now? Like, where is it going? What, what do you have kind of planned coming up? Well, we're we're seeing a, a big trend across uh, the market, which is affecting both companies. And this is the the rise of product management. You know, when we first started on this thing, people didn't know what product managers were. They tended to be uh, outnumbered massively. 10 to 1 developers to product managers. Uh, they, the product managers tended to report into either marketing or into the tech team. Uh, they didn't have budgets of their own. They didn't have training of their own. Um, <laughs> nowadays, it's actually changing. We're seeing this, this rise of the chief product officer, You know, somebody who is on the board or at the board level and represents product. So now product managers don't report into tech, they report into product, which reports into the CEO. Uh, it gives them more responsibility, gives them more um, uh, budget, more power, more uh, influence within the company. And companies now are finally moving away from building a whole bunch of features and getting story points out the door. It's less about agile cadence, but more about being lean and building the right thing, whether you do that agile or waterfall or ho however else. So we're seeing this real change in the marketplace, which has meant that there's now more product managers, there's more people who need tools, there's more budget behind it, um, which has worked beautifully for our uh, for both the, the conference as well as for the software. Yeah. And then, you know, couple that with just there are so many more and more products coming out, coming out to market, more competitors in every space, more customers. It's it's a it's a growing uh, it's a growing world for sure. Very cool. Well, Jana, thanks so much for for taking the time. This is this has been uh, really really valuable. I'm, I know that the listeners will will get a lot out of it. I know that I did. So so thank you. That's great. Thanks very much. Um, so of course you know again the product is at prodpad.com. Uh, the community is at mindtheproduct.com. Uh, where else can people uh, kind of connect with you? Uh, come find me on uh, Twitter. I'm simply Basto on Twitter. 
or you can find me. Uh, I'm Dana Basto. Come find me on LinkedIn and come say hi. Awesome. Thanks, Dana. Thanks very much. Bye. All right. Now, before we wrap up, let me ask you, what did you think of this one? Was it good? You learned something? Are there any other topics you'd like to hear me cover on this pod? Well, let me know. No, I mean, really, like, let me know. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you. I'll read every single one. I try to reply to everyone. What's that? Oh, you're not on my list yet. Okay, well, head over to my site, productizepodcast.com. You can get on my email newsletter that way. I'll send you you know, new episodes and all the show notes, but I'll also send you my newsletter where I share all sorts of articles and other insights on entrepreneurship, building products, productized services, software, SaaS, and other cool stuff there. So yeah, check that out over at productizepodcast.com. And of course, if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate it if you could head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review, or at least just five stars. You don't even have to leave a review if you don't want to, but that would really go a long way to helping other folks like us find this podcast. So yeah, thanks a lot for tuning in. I'll talk to you on the next one.